0: It's good to have you here. My name is Luke. Um, I know that it sounds like I've been smoking Pall Malls and going to the club late, but I have not. I'm just on the backside. I'm in the red zone of being done with whatever it is I had. I'm still not even sure. Um, But as Charlie said, we're going to be in Psalm 16 today. So if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible or a device you use, we will put it up on the screen as well. Um, And I'm. I'm excited about this moment, this next six or seven weeks, we get to be in the Psalms and what we call Anthem. This actually is not a new series for us. We did this back in 2018. We called that volume one. Um, We're gonna pick it back up as volume two and probably every two or three years, we will pick up the Psalms and continue to work through it. It's a lot of Psalms. Um, So I don't think we'll ever get to finish all of them. Um, But I think it's going to be helpful for us to build a better theology about who God is. Um, Why the Psalms? The Psalms is a big piece of how God reveals himself to you and me. You see, God reveals himself to you and me using different literary genres of the Bible, which is why Matthew doesn't read like Genesis, doesn't read like Revelation, doesn't read like Proverbs, right? We read them differently, even though it's all the same Bible, all inerrant, all God-breathed, all given to you and me as a gift, all of it pointing to the person and the work of Christ. Um, But the Psalms are a, a little different. You see, the point of your Bible is not to just transmit information to you. It's actually also to ignite your emotions for the Lord, maybe trigger your imagination for who God is. And for this, poetry is very effective. The Psalms are vital to understanding who God is and therefore who we are you know, remove this from your library and you will get a view of God that will be misshapen. And if your view of God is misshapen, then your view of yourself will inevitably be misshapen as well. And we know this, that we form a view of ourselves after how we see God, which is if you don't believe in God at all, it most certainly affects how you see yourself. If you see God as very um, disturbed, uh, maybe with a furrowed brow, not excited about you, detached, angry, it will affect how you see yourself, how you see your life, how you see your, your role in this world. If you see God as one who loves you and is kind and is close and thoughtful and gracious and merciful, it will affect how you see yourself. But listen, if you hate poetry, you hate it less than me. I will tell you that right now. I'm way ahead of you, Um, I was thinking a little bit about this this morning. I've been caught twice in my life cheating in school. Once in college, my very last week of my very last semester of college, I got caught cheating and almost got kicked out. That's a totally different story. But I did also get caught cheating in high school. In my freshman year, the English teacher wanted us to take the weekend and write a poem, okay? And I thought, probably not because... Poetry. Who wants to do that? But I do remember going to my grandma's house and just out of the corner of my eye, I saw a book of poems on her coffee table. So I did the obvious. I flipped it open, picked one, and copied it word for word. <laughs> Turned it in Monday and got called into the office. And I thought, wow, I'm getting, I'm getting caught. This is my first time to ever cheat and I'm getting caught. Not so much. They were excited about the poem. They'd never seen anything like that from a freshman before I said, you have a real gift. Like, let me be, so you have a real gift. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna try to nurture and groom this gift of poetry in you. We're gonna put you in this special class where all they do is write poetry. And I thought, all right, the gig is up. I cheated. I totally told on myself because the tension was better than going into a class to learn how to write yet more poems. I've just never been a fan of taking a long time to use rare words that rhyme to say something that could have been said in a lot shorter amount of time with clear words, right? Poetry feels inefficient to me, but I know it's effective in addressing the corners of my heart. I know that when I can really hear it and understand it, it does something different for me. So I know it's valuable. In the Psalms that we look at, it's important for me to just remind you of this, and this might be news for some of you, the Psalms are actually song lyrics. It's not so much just poetry that stands on its own, but back in the day when, when, when the contemporaries would have heard a psalm like this, there would have been music in the background, right? And you'll actually find bands today that every once in a while will grab a psalm and try to put music to it, but they don't really do it. They'll take like one or two chunks of it and do it over and over again and maybe add some of their own words. But, I mean, every once in a while a band will try to pick up a psalm. I actually heard one that tried to use original instruments to that era and tried to put the song together as, it really, as they imagine it really would have been. And it sounds horrible, right? I'm, I mean, I don't even make it 10 seconds into it. So a lot of this is lost on us today that these are actually song lyrics. It's one of the reasons we call this series Anthem. Anthem is not just any kind of a song. It's an emotionally rousing song that connects to the heart and and, and the soul of a people. It's, It's wrapped around a movement maybe, a cause. Most generations have them. Some have more than one. It rallies people. It's like a people's soundtrack, right? Defines us. I'll never forget when I was 16 years old, walking across the living room, and then with MTV on, seeing Smells Like Teen Spirit come on for the very first time. i never heard of it before, Nirvana's breakout song. And I watched the whole thing, and I thought, music's never going to be the same again. Not only that, I'm not sure how I feel about that. It's different from anything I've ever heard. But whether I like it or not, that guy gets my generation a little bit. He talked about the anxieties of Generation X. He, he talks about the, the skepticism of Generation X. Kurt Cobain says this, here we are now, entertain us. I feel stupid and contagious. And millions of kids picked that up and ran with it. It became our anthem. And before that, three years before that, I remember hearing Fight the Power from Public Enemy for the first time in a middle school parking lot. Some car came along. It didn't even have the speakers for it, so it just rattled a bunch. But I could hear some of the lyrics And I thought, that dude sounds angry, straight up angry, right? It's because he's calling a generation to action that was too young to have lived through the civil rights movement. They didn't know any of that. And he is calling them to step up. And that song was such a big deal, it became the anchor point for Spike Lee's breakout film, which was Do the Right Thing, because that's what an anthem will do. Listen, we've got them today as well. Right, the LGBTQ community, if you were to ask them what their, what their anthem is, it would probably be Lady Gaga's Born This Way. It's at least in their top five because they say, that song gets me. It defines my cause. It defines my generation. Here's the thing. Without deep emotional connection in anthem, it's just a trendy song, just a trendy song. Anthems are emotionally defining, and that's why it's important for you and me, Right? Because emotions express our doctrine, our theological beliefs. I could tell you what I believe. I could tell you what makes me afraid. I could tell you what makes me excited, what makes me encouraged, what I believe about God. But if you followed me for a month and saw where I got fearful and angry and excited and elated, you'd know what I believe. You would know what my theology really was. That's what our emotions do. And when it comes to God, we could be clumsy with our emotions. Not just in how we see him, but how we relate to God. We could be very clumsy. Friends, this is why you've had prayers where something has come out of your mouth, maybe out of frustration. Maybe you've come to the end of yourself. And as soon as it came out of your mouth, you thought to yourself, whoops, was I allowed to say that to God? How shocking that that would come out of my mouth. Maybe it was a desperate word. Maybe you said something that was foul and you thought for a moment you shocked an unshockable God you're like, I, I, don't, I don't know how I feel. I mean, that's how I felt. It just didn't sound very theologically clean. And you've also said things that are theologically clean that you didn't really feel, right? And you see how emotionally clumsy we can be? It's one of the things I love about the Psalms. You'll find some soul-crushing lyrics in the Psalms that whenever you read them, it seems inappropriate, right? It seems like you shouldn't be reading it, like it shouldn't even be in your Bible. Some... We'll have a poet that's having a very good day. He just had like a slam dunk devotional time, filled his journal up. He just got the bonus at work. He got the first Tesla truck before everybody else did. He's engaged, everything is exciting and you can tell it through the lines of the Psalm. And then sometimes you have a poet that just wishes he was dead. Even worse, he wishes he was never alive. And then some Psalms, you'll find them both in the same Psalm, right? It travels so emotionally fast but our goal as a church is to help you connect emotionally to Jesus, not just mentally, not just mentally. Your affections for God, they need to be more than just a cold, hard calculus of theology, of who God is. So today we're going to start off by looking at a glad heart. How do we have a glad heart when we're in a rotten season? A better question, how do you love something you don't love? How do you like a God you just don't feel like liking in the moment? And what does Jesus have to do with any of this, right? So let's look at Psalm 16. This is going to be the passage that's going to do all of the heavy lifting. We will see the person of Christ clearly in this if we have eyes to see it. This is the word of the Lord. It says, a mictum of David. Nobody really knows what a mictum is, by the way. Fill in the blank. A bunch of nerds argue about it. It doesn't really matter. It's a song, okay? Verse 1. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Okay, here's the main idea. If we were to squeeze that into one sentence. David is finding his deepest good, quote unquote good. His deepest pleasure, his deepest good in the presence of God contrasted with those who are running after their gods and find multiple miseries or multiple sorrows, right? It's a tale of two lives, right? Those with multiplied blessings versus those with multiplied sorrows. I mean, I think you guys probably picked that up. So it's easy for us to look at that and say, yeah, that's true. But does it fit in the category of why do I care? (laughs) I was telling Joseph earlier, it's kind of a forgettable psalm, really, You can pick it up, you read it, it sounds good, it feels right, and then you move on. But why do we really care about this? Here's why. Since the garden, since mankind began, humanity has always felt a lack of not just gladness, but perpetual gladness, consistent ongoing gladness. Once Adam walked with a glad heart, a whole heart, with joy, and it couldn't be added to. Like he never had a moment where he didn't feel joy. I, don't, I can't even comprehend that. I mean, we have moments where we have joy, moments that we would call pleasurable or good, moments that we would even call heavenly. But they don't last long, do they? They don't last long. Man, I, I was reminded of this painfully, like maybe in our 18th month of being here. We were a baby church. We just launched out of the house. And I remember being, it was a fall. I remember that. It was a fall afternoon, and I think it was after Sunday maybe, who knows, but I was around a campfire with some of my oldest friends and some new friends. Man, it was awesome, telling stories, laughing, just had a great meal and we're sitting around this campfire and the air was just crisp enough where I didn't need a jacket, but was, it was just cold enough where the heat from the fire felt good. You know what I'm talking about. I'm sitting back in a camp chair that actually still works. You know how most of yours don't even work, like the arm is way down or mine was working still, so I was comfortable in front of the fire, and I remember cocking my head back and going, man, I wish moments like this could stay forever. Moments like this. this must be a little piece of heaven. And then all of a sudden a puff of smoke, no, a column of smoke went right up my nose, fumigated my sinuses, I start hacking and coughing and I, I open my eyes and I'm like, gum fire, it's all up in my face, so I grab my camp chair, march around, put it down, And then what what does the fire do? It follows me. The stupid smoke knew. He knew what I was doing. And it came and it just kept ruining my afternoon. That's what it's like, right? That's what it's like. The joys we have in this life. Since the fall, every satisfying moment you have holds a column of smoke. A hard stop. And so what do we do as humans? We hunt for more. To replace what we just lost. And we'll look just about anywhere, won't we? for goodness, for a clad heart. In society and culture, they will advertise a million ways for you to get it. Rolling Stones had their own anthem in 1965, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Mick Jagger in the beginning portion of that song says when I'm driving in my car, when a man comes on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination. Supposed to. Supposed to fire my imagination. For a fleeting moment, we hear what culture tells us will make our heart glad. We hear that inner voice telling us if we just had more of this, it will make our heart glad. But it never fires off our imagination for very long, does it? Just a hard stop. I mean, the vacation comes, but the vacation ends. New car smell comes new car smell ends, on and on and on. Listen, would it surprise you to hear that not only has God hardwired you to hunt down happiness wherever you can, has he, not only is he hardwired for you to, to think in that way, to look for it, he's also hardwired us to where it will always slip through our fingers like water. Like water. Why? Your heart was built for heaven. When you are searching for goodness, you're searching for God. It's so important for you to know that. It's so important for you to know that when you're looking for a glad heart and you see something that might make you, what you're really looking for is God. And this is where we find friction with God, with this, with this passage even, because we are often under-delighted and underwhelmed with who God is. He says, Jesus is not satisfying. And when Jesus is not satisfying, it makes the goods of this world a much heavier requirement for us. We must have them. We must have the Vols win. We must have work be fulfilling. Our marriage must be a storybook marriage. We need those things to happen. They must happen. But when Jesus satisfies our deepest need, we don't have to lean on what the world advertises us to have a glad heart with. We're oxygenated by the gospel, satisfied and contented so much with what God has done in the person and the work with Jesus that the job does not have to be the thing that makes us glad. Our marriage, when we don't have glad seasons, it doesn't wreck us. You know, we say the same thing from the pulpit every week, I feel like. We just use different passages and different words when it comes to this. When we are satisfied with God in our deepest areas We simply don't need the world to be such a heavy crutch for us to lean on. But we got to come back to the same question. How do we get the heart to like what the heart doesn't like? And I know what some of you are thinking right now because some of you are like me. And we will ask another question. Why does it matter? Does it really matter that you're happy, Luke? Or does it just matter that you're holy? This is typically pushed out there by the more disciplined personality, maybe the more militant Personality, do you really need to be happy? Or can't you just suck it up and just serve, just do your duty, just get to it? Holiness is what really matters. But listen, it dishonors God to think in that way. It dishonors God to replace the delight in Him, which is duty. We don't think in that way, but it's true. He is actually most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We say that all the time. I mean my wife. I love my bride. How much would it honor her if I was married to her out of duty? Served her out of duty. Hung out with her out of duty. She wouldn't feel honored in that at all. Nor would you. But I delight in her. I delight in her and that honors her. I just bump into more and more people now that don't love Jesus. People that grew up with Jesus. People that grew up in the church. Grew up in a God-fearing family. I'm hearing more and more now, Luke, I just don't love Jesus. Let me tell you, I cannot look them in the eye and say, oh, yeah? Well, just suck it up. Just suck it up, man. Hey, just have an hour of power every morning, and eventually you'll get it. Eventually you'll get it. You'll just fake it until you make it. So we're, we're back to where we began. If duty isn't going to work, and the world is never going to fire off our imagination, how do we find gladness that won't disappoint? All right? How do we do that? I know I say this every week, but the gospel's gonna answer this question for us because ultimately the gospel is a story of inheritance versus abandonment. These are two of the mega themes we find in our Psalm today. I mean, word for word, this is what David is saying. These are heavy themes and David had no idea that Jesus would die passionately on the cross when he wrote this, right? But here we have verse six, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed. I have a beautiful inheritance. I have a beautiful inheritance. Right? Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. These are heavy themes here. I don't even have to teach them. You know what an inheritance is. One generation works, leaves it to another generation that does not work. Right? That's why whenever someone says the phrase trust fund kid, immediately has a negative connotation, doesn't it? You're like, you know, no one ever says, trust fund kid, that's encouraging, that's exciting, tell me more about that. We hear trust fund kid and we're like, trust fund kid, huh? Interesting, as you crawl into your nice car and I'm working over here and I've got a 10 year old accord. You know, That's what we think, we ha- it's a negative connotation. Why, because they didn't work for it. They didn't step in, they didn't clock up for it, they just got it, they just inherited it. Same thing with abandonment, don't even really have to teach that. It's just when someone is stranded, they're left. The rejected, right? If you have a dog and that dog has separation anxiety and you make a quick trip to Trader Joe's and you come back and your coffee table has three legs now, not four, because that dog ate a leg, ate a wooden leg to your coffee table. The animal does, it knows enough to know that rejection hurts. It doesn't want to be left, doesn't want to be stranded. It panics. How much more the human soul, how much more the human soul You see, there's three primary ways you can read a psalm. If you're floating through all of those psalms, just know that there's three ways on this side of the cross that you can read one, okay? Because let me remind you, we read this Bible through the prism of what God has done through Jesus, okay? And Christ himself said, every portion of this points to him. It points to him. It draws our gaze to him, and the psalms are no different. When you read a psalm, it is either a prayer to Jesus. You can read it as a prayer to Jesus. There's plenty of them like that. It could be a prayer of Jesus. Psalm 22 is a good example of that. We went over that in volume one of Anthem. Lord, Lord, our Father, why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me? That's actually a psalm. He was crying out song lyrics from the cross. That's a second one. So a prayer to Jesus, a prayer of Jesus. But the third one is the one that we're using today a picture of God that finds its ultimate expression in Jesus. That's really what we're finding. The pinnacle expression is in Jesus here. Because we have a picture of the gospel where we did not work for our inheritance. We didn't deserve what we got. We're trust fund kids. That's grace, God's favor to you totally despite you. That's what we got. And what we did not get is rejection, abandonment to Sheol. He took that for us. That's where we did get what we should have gotten. That's mercy. So we have this picture of grace and mercy coming together in the same psalm. Jesus works. We're enriched. Jesus is rejected. We're adopted. It's fascinating, really. I mean, sure, we're all going to die, right? But it's not a hard stop for us. It's it's not not a wall. It's just a door. That's important. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, He becomes a brother that leads his family from the dead. We will not be abandoned, but we will inherit eternal life. So Jesus is proof that we can risk ourselves upon him as our greatest good. In fact, if you look in Ephesians 1, and you can stay where you're at if you want. I'm going to read out of this, and it will be up on the screen as well. This is a description of some of our inheritance. In verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen, I'm not entirely sure what to think of that passage. I'm not entirely sure how to wrap my arms around that. What is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? I don't think mankinds have been able to really deduce exactly what that is. I'm fine with that. He goes on to say, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And then further down in verse 11, in him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Listen, we have a reason to have a glad heart, even on very rotten days. Every spiritual blessing and treasure in heaven guarded, promised, watched over, waiting for us, sealed. That inheritance is sealed by the very Spirit of God, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. We'll never be abandoned. We we, we have no need to ever have separation anxiety from God, ever. Friends, we have all the Monopoly money, all of it. So how can we apply this on an average day? Because all of that sounds good, but it sounds kind of at 30,000 foot. How do we drive it into Tuesday afternoon? Okay. And for this, we're going to pull right from his very first phrase in the psalm, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. This is going to be important for us, refuge. When there's no gladness in your heart but only misery, we step into the sheltering refuge of God. I don't know how, how many of you have walked some of the trails in the Smokies, Um, But if you go far enough off of a smoky trail, you can end up on the Appalachian Trail. And on the Appalachian Trail, there's over 200 shelters, what they'll call refuges or shelters, right? And when we first moved here, I remember running up on the AT and running by one of these shelters. I didn't know that they were there. I'd never seen one. I thought, yo, what is that? So I kind of pulled off and stuck my head in there. And there were some skeezy hikers in there finishing breakfast, you know. And it was just a three-walled structure with a roof that looked like it was sound. And I just kind of, just checking it out. What is this thing? And all it, and it, doesn't even have a floor. It's just a dirt floor. These big plank table looking benches and wide enough for a sleeping bag. And I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. But upon further inspection, not so cool. There's mice running around. I thought, oh, I'm out. There's mice running around. How do you sleep knowing that there's mice running around? How do you sleep knowing that there's just a skeezy hiker right there, man? And that guy had more bugs than the shelter had, you know? So I think, who, who sleeps in one of these things? You can't trust this thing. I'd rather sleep under a tree with a tarp or something than this. I mean, you can't trust it. And that's what it takes. A refuge requires trust. You can't step into the shelter of the Lord if in your heart of hearts you're saying, I don't know, Lord. Meditating on your goodness. It seems like maybe it could satisfy, but far less satisfying than binging Smoking, escaping, working, swiping, posting, ranting, gaming. That sounds like a better refuge. You see, we don't trust God as a shelter when our imaginations can be fired all over the place, right? Those are different shelters that we trust. I mean, friend, have you caught yourself building a life where Jesus just isn't necessary? Have you caught yourself build, working really hard to build the various silos of your life to where they're just adequate shelters, right? you got a good enough marriage to hide in. A big enough account, retirement or otherwise, to hide in, good enough friends to hide in, good enough health to hide in, good enough hobbies to store yourself in, shelter in. We see what a refuge and what the refuge of the Lord does is it gives you and me a safe space to rebuild our perspective to rebuild it. And friends, we need that so bad. You see, when you're inside of a shelter or a refuge, you can see outside into the carnage, but you yourself are no longer under duress. The arrows can't hit you. The heat can't touch you. The rain can't touch you. Listen, I lived in Tampa long enough to have made it through two hurricanes and two tropical storms. Now, these aren't big hurricanes, not like the one that just ripped through. These are like ones or twos you know, on, on the scale, so you, you'll, you'll lose your electricity probably, you know, you bought extra stuff probably, but I remember for the first one, just leaning up against the wall and looking out the window, and everything is laying on its side, flapping in the wind, you know, and rain is sideways, and animals are flying through, it's like Twister, you know, animals are flying across, and I'm there with a cup of coffee just like this, I mean, this looks chill, right, just leaning up against the wall with, with a cup of coffee thinking, hmm, man, Lord, I feel so close to you right now. Look how strong you are. You know, I'm all pontificating. I'm meditating on the strength of God and what nature does to show us who God is. I was able to see the problem differently than had I been out there. Listen, if I'm out there, I'm all spilling my coffee and and hiding under my car, holding on to whatever because the winds are 80 miles an hour. I'm not thinking about how great the Lord is. I've got my lizard brain on. It's fight or flight. I'm worried about what's next. That's what a shelter does for you. You could come in from the storm. You could come in from the arrows. It's so helpful for us. It changes our perspective. You'll have the same problems, the same issue, but they're shaped differently now. They don't look the same. Why? You have perspective. And one of the things David has here is he says, God holds my lot. That's something you can only say when you are firmly rested and entrusted in the shelter and the refuge. You cannot say that in the middle of a fight as easily. What does he mean, God holds my lot? Excuse me. He says, God holds my future. He has providential care over my life. He is sovereign in my life. He's designated my circumstances. Think about that when you're in a sorry, rotten season. Listen, friends, either God has designed our circumstances or he's not God at all. He either drives history or he's a passenger. Architect or spectator, you choose, right? But he says here, God holds my lot. And there's a piece of that that really ministers to me. Because when I'm finding myself retreating into the shelter of the Lord, I put the phone away. I shut the laptop. I I, I get out of the business of business. I create some unbounded time where I have the resolve of I'm not moving until you speak to me. I'm not moving until I hear from you. And in that moment, it's easy for me to go, you know what, God? You're God. You're God or you're not. You've got control of this. I trust you. That's really hard to say when your world's falling apart and you're not refuged in, though, isn't it? Really hard to say. When my heart is not glad and I find myself sheltered in the Lord, I ask myself questions like, what is happening right now? What is being removed from my life to make this hard? What's being added to my life that's making this difficult? What is this promising me, this shelter over here that I keep ducking under? What is that promising me? Where is God? Who is God? So, so, so hard to ask and have these questions answered when arrows are flying and the rain is pounding, and you have not figured out a way to recluse into the shelter of the Lord. He even says here, in the night also my heart instructs me. I love this part of the passage. When David is left alone in the belly of the night with only himself in the beat of his own heart to keep him company, he is in the quietest part of creation and he's meditating on the character of God, who God is. It's the best time to do that. That's when I have those moments with the Lord. Lord, I hate this pain so much this thing that you've designed, I hate it so much. The pain that I hate, the carnage that I hate, the divorce over here that's happening, the death that's here that's happening, the deconstruction over here that's happening, the failed relationship over here that's happening, the poverty over here that's happening, The death when I, when I feel all of that, it allows me to remind myself, yeah, God hates it more. He hates it more. How do I know? He did something about it. I can't fix a busted up marriage. I can't fix cancer. I can't, I can't fix death. God hates it so much, he came. He came to change it all. To take our cracked cosmos and flip it by living perfectly and dying passionately and rising by the power of God. He did that. And allowing myself to just rehearse these truths over and over and over again. So important. Some of the best nights of my life we're spent not sleeping, but battling it out like this. But listen, these meditative moments, what he calls in the night, it doesn't have to be in the night, understand? That's a little metaphorical. But these deep meditative moments, that's what builds a speedy reflex in us, okay? That's what makes us quick. It's the time we spend sheltered in the refuge of the Lord that we examine our hearts and trust in the Lord and have the gladness in us built. That's when, that's when the real work happens, right? Right? When I bump into somebody that's having just a really rotten season and I ask the question, friend, listen. I hate what's going on in your life right now and if I could fix it, I'd fix it immediately. But let me ask you, who is God to you right now? Who is God to you right now? Listen, most of the time, vast majority of time, they answer it correctly. Right? But this is what it will look like. Who is the Lord to you right now? Yeah, well. Okay. Well, God is sovereign, correct? God is good, he's he's strong. Okay, well, how do you know these things? Well, I mean, he did do this in the Bible, and there is this part of the gospel story. They get it right. It takes them forever to get there. That's not a reflex. It's not fast. It's not their instinct to get there. People don't grow, mostly because of a lack of these quieter moments, These lack of finding that place of refuge and shelter in the Lord is a precious place. We're so busy ducking under anything else that looks like a shelter in our life. Anything else that promises peace, joy, and a glad heart. Let me have just an honest question for the sad-hearted in the room. When the arrows are flying and the heat is hot and your heart is looking for gladness, What is your instinct? What is your instinct? What is your reflex? Who is what, what's your refuge? Who is God to you right now? How do you know? What can you stand on? What gets you there quickly? Listen, it's the well-worn path to the presence of God that is most helpful when the arrows are flying. Not just the path of God, but the well-worn one. There are moments in my life I'm thankful to the Lord that I was able to get to his presence quickly, but I recognize in that moment, that's built on the back of a thousand moments of rehearsing things in the shelter of the Lord. And I know tomorrow's crises will be served well by what I'm doing right now. What I'm doing right now. How I'm finding refuge right now. That's what will serve me and my family and you down the road. And listen, if you're here and you're listening and you are far from Christ or you're watching online right now and you would say that you are far from Jesus, looking for Jesus, I'm going to ask you the same exact question. Who is God to you? Who is God to you? That's the most important question you could possibly answer, by the way. Right? That's the most important thing you could formulate in your mind of minds for the whole time you're breathing air is who is God to you? And I just want you to recognize that when you hunt down happiness, it is God you're looking for. Your heart was made to look for happiness. And it was made to slam into walls until it find happiness in Christ and in Christ alone. That's why you've had so much frustration. Or as what David says, multiplied sorrows, multiplied miseries, just trying to keep your heart happy. You need to know that God has a foreign policy for you. And it is, right now, kindness, and it's to win your heart. These multiplied sorrows and miseries you feel today, they will become eternal ones tomorrow if there's no repentance in your life. It is His kindness that's leading you to repentance. It is His thoughtfulness that's leading you to a bent knee and a submitted heart. It's His love that pulls close to you, even in a moment like this right now. Ask God to change your heart forever. And in a moment when the musicians come out and we celebrate together through song, I'm going to be standing back there. And if that's you, I want you to come back and talk to me. I want you to come back and just say, hey, I I think the Lord's doing something in my heart. I don't really know what. I just, I feel differently. I, I don't really even know how to pray. I want to be there for you. I want to be helpful for you.